Hello, this is Gene Wilhelm, and today we'll be exploring the scriptures for the second Sunday of Ordinary Time, January 16th, 2022. Do whatever he tells you are Mary's last recorded words in the Gospels. She speaks these words to us as well. If we obey what Jesus tells us to do, we can expect the results that the servants did at the wedding. Maybe not quite like that spectacular, but still something that's going to be a change. That there'll be life-changing results in our lives and in the lives of those around us. God loves us and wants to demonstrate his love for us. Sometimes that means doing things that don't make a whole lot of sense. I'm going to begin today with the gospel. And I know that I don't normally do this, but that's what I'm going to do today. And because I think it's the key, and I want to make sure that we have enough time to, to get the gospel, and then we'll do the first reading, because I think the first reading tells us a little bit about what, what God does, wants to do for us, how he feels about us, or how, how he, his, his love for us. The gospel is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Now, it's interesting that we have this gospel from John in cycle C, because cycle C is Luke. But John is the only place where this particular miracle is recorded. And this is the first miracle of Jesus. And uh, it is, this is happening very soon, about three days after the events that you see previously in the last part of uh, chapter one. So it says, there was a wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. And Cana is a word that means place of reeds. Uh, and as, as we go into this, it's we're seeing things here that are a foreshadowing shadowing of what will happen in the upper room on Holy Thursday. And we have to also think about the other miracle that involves something to eat or drink, which is the miracle of the loaves uh, that was there. It says in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Uh, that's interesting. It's this, the note in the New Jerusalem Bible tells us that Mary is present when Jesus first manifests his glory. So this is the first miracle that he's doing. She's there. She is there at the cross. The two descriptions have several details in common, evidently, evidently of a set purpose. So Luke, Luke is doing this deliberately to show things. And as we elaborate a little bit more on this gospel, I think you'll see why Luke has done this. It says, Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. Now, you have to remember that a wedding feast at this time among the Jews was a seven-day affair. But that's what my understanding is. So it says, when the wine ran short. So uh, what we have here is that somebody was drinking more wine than anybody who planned the wedding thought would happen. The mother of Jesus said to him, so mother, Jesus' mother is talking to him, says, they have no wine. And Jesus responds, my hour has not yet come. I'm not scheduled to do any miracles now. Another thing that we can put in more terminal, uh, current terms is poor planning on their part doesn't mean a crisis on my part. What am I supposed to do? I mean, it's not, it's not, it doesn't affect me. Woman, how does this, does your, does your concern affect me? So why should I get involved? And she doesn't say anything. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, his mother is very, persistent. She's a, she's a Jewish mother after all. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now, what we have to see here is this is pretty bold. She's talking to the servants. They aren't her servants. They're the servants for uh, the guests, yes, but they are employed by the, the probably the father of the groom or the father of the bride. It's not, I don't, I'm not clear how that worked in Jewish culture. So, and whatever the ch- servants are doing here, she's telling them to do something that Jesus tells them to do. And it's obviously not for their benefit, but for the benefit of the guests and the bride and the groom and the family of the, of the bride and the groom. Now we can take a look at that and we can see that, uh, that Jesus is doing something strange again. So if we look at note C, uh, it says, this is an unusual address of uh, Jesus addressing his mother as woman, unusual address from a son to his mother. The term is, is used again in 1926, where its meaning becomes clear as an allusion to Genesis 3, 15 and 20. Mary is the new Eve, the living mother. Remember in John, Jesus tells John, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And so this is tying back to the the fall. So it's telling us that Mary is the new Eve and there's some kind of a redemption, some some type of a thing is going to happen here that is going to be a redemption from the fall. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washings. If you look at, uh, well, let's, let's step back a bit. There's another time that we see where somebody's told to do whatever he tells you to do, and that's when Pharaoh had uh, Joseph in charge of all the things in the land, and the famine was coming. Says, when all the land of Egypt was fam- famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to do, do. So it's it's not unusual for this type of a command to be given. And this, in the case of, in Genesis, we see it's the Pharaoh. Now, so there were six stone water jars there for ceremonial washings. These are for purification of things. Now, the Jews were very scrupulous about this. Jesus observed that in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, observing the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they purify themselves. And there are many other traditions which they observe, the washing of cups and pots and vessels of bronze. <clears throat> so that there's a very scrupulous thing on the part of the Jews for these ceremonial washings. And Jesus had talked about that another place where he talks, you clean the outside of the cup, but you don't clean the inside. So uh, it's very much external. Um, and you have to, this is pu- water for purification. It's not even drinking water. So it's water meant to wash the feet and the hands and whatever else needs to be done. And each of these jars, uh, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So you've got six times t- 20 is 120 gallons. Six times 30 is 180 gallons of, wa- of water here. Jesus told them, fill the jars with water. Now, what we see here is a concern that Jesus has for this couple and that they not be embarrassed uh, in, in, in any way or shamed. And we have to understand Jesus is showing a concern for them and Jesus wants to show that concern for us. Now, so he has that. 
Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. So the servants were obedient to Jesus. It's very clear that had the servants not been obedient to Jesus and filled the water jars and, and done what the next thing he told them to do, is there would not have been a miracle because there was nothing to do. Sometimes when God asks us to do something, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense what he asks us to do, and it's maybe something that's very ordinary. And what we see in this gospel is that Jesus asks us often to take the water of our lives so that he can turn it into wine. He wants to take the ordinary that's in us, and he wants to transform us. That's, that's the whole part. That's the whole thing of submitting to Jesus, that in, through the obedience to what God tells us to do, through what we hear Jesus tell us to do, we, if we are obedient to that, then, then God can work in our lives and transform us from something ordinary, something maybe not even pure, which this, this ceremonial water for ceremonial washings may not have been pure enough to drink, into something that is very valuable. And so we have to sell it to that. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some of the water out and take it to the head waiter. Now, if I were one of these servants, I'm not sure that I would have wanted to do this because the head waiter knows good wine and maybe this is, this is your livelihood and you give him some water to drink and pretending as though it's wine and it's not really wine, you could really get in a lot of trouble with this guy, and this might be the last wedding that you ever work for him. But they did it anyway, so they took it. And I think that shows a lot of faith on the part of the servants. You know, Paul talks about us as being servants of the Lord. And maybe we, we are told to take ourselves somewhere or take what he's given us and do something with it where we might be embarrassed or condemned or ridiculed, and yet, do you do that? So they took it, and when the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine without knowing where it come from, all the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, well, let's, wait, let's stop there a minute. Jesus took what was available, something of little value, and he turned it into something very valuable. That's what really, I'm going to repeat, that's what he wants to do in our lives. We may be small in our sight, but he wants us to be transformed into something that is of value and people can see the glory of God through us. Okay? The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. So they serve the good wine when the people aren't, uh, haven't had enough wine that maybe their senses are dulled so that they get the good wine first. And then you, and he says, and when the people have drunk freely, an inferior one. So when people are a little bit tipsy or had a lot to drink and their senses are not quite as acute, then you serve the poor one. But you have kept the good wine until now. Why is this? What? So I can understand the confusion on the part of the head waiter here because based on what he's tasting, the it's gone in just the opposite direction of what people typically do. And we need to understand that that is the way God works with us. He takes what he has and he makes it better than anything we could do on our own. So this is even this is probably the best wine this head waiter has ever tasted. 
And we have to understand that that's the type of transformation that God wants to do in our lives. He wants to show us his power and his majesty, his glory, and his complete love and care for us in a very similar way. <clears throat> and the way, But you, Jesus did this as the beginning of his signs at Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory. And his disciples began to believe in him. Now let's take a look at the note in the New Jerusalem Bible. It says, that basically it says that these he's, miracles and signs like this are credentials for a prophet. So Jesus, we see that Jesus is the Messiah, that he would repeat Moses' miracles. Okay? Now, what? let's take a look again. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And this says, this is the last supper. And then likewise, the chalice after the supper, he said after the supper, this is the chalice which is poured out for you, out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what we see in the new covenant, in the last supper, Jesus took the wine and changed it into the blood of the true Paschal lamb who would do the real purification rather than the symbolic purification that Jews were doing with the water. So I think it's significant here that you have the water for purification, which is the symbolic thing in a way. I mean, there's there are some health reasons, but in, it, it was basically symbolic, a cleansing of sin and, and purification of all these things to get rid of all that. And he turns it into wine, the best wine there is. Then at the Last Supper, takes this wine and he turns it into his blood. And that's the blood of the lamb, that was, which reminds us of the Paschal lamb, which was whose blood was placed on the doorpost the night of the Exodus beginning and which saved the people of Israel. So let's take a look at that. Uh, now that we got that down, let's take a look at the first reading. And the first reading is, again, from the book of Isaiah. And this is one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. And what we have here is a situation in which the uh, Israelites are really feeling sorry for themselves, for what has gone on with their country. They're in captivity in Babylon and they feel as though God has abandoned them. They got a, a, a real case of what we would call today the poor me's. And what you have God speaking through Isaiah here is, for Zion's sake, I will not be silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. So God's going to keep speaking to them, even though they are preoccupied with their woes. He's going to talk to them. And he say. I will not be quiet until her vindication shines forth like the dawn. The vindication, so, so that everything is made right again. And her victory, like a burning torch. Okay, so God wants to save them. Now, the word victory, there really means salvation or saved. It's Yeshua. Because uh, uh, you know, Jesus was Yahweh saves. So it's this is a saving God's saving, and we need to do that. And that's a vindication. The word there is at tzedek, which means right. Things are set right. Things are set the way they ought to be. And he he's not going to stop until he brings peace back to the people of God. 
Okay, so nations shall behold your vindication. Now, it's very key here again that it says nations because that word nations is goy, which means the Gentiles. So it's not just the Jews that are going to see that God has set things right for his people. And it's not just that he's going to set the things right for the people of Israel. This is really a, an allusion to the uh fact that God's salvation is meant for all mankind. Again, it, if we look forward into Acts, where Peter is at Cornelius's house, Peter sees that God is not, it, the salvation that came through Jesus Christ was not just for the Jews. The salvation that God brought through his son, Jesus Christ, is meant for all people. And it's talking about that here. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul tells us. We all suffer from the sin of Adam and Eve that we see in the first, uh, the third chapter of, of Genesis. We all suffer from that, whether we're Jew or Greek. You know, Paul talks about that. There's no difference there. We're all there. And all the kings, your glory. So why talk about the kings here? Because those are the leaders. Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And it's saying here that they're going to have to recognize the glory of God the glory of the real king of the universe that we celebrated on Feast of Christ the King, pronounced by the mouth of the Lord. So God is going to speak the glory that he's given to his son, and all the world is going to hear it. Now, some of them will choose to ignore it, but they're going to hear it. Now, here's the key thing. No more shall you be called forsaken. No more shall you be called forsaken. So the people of God in Babylon feel as though God has forsaken them. And they speak to each other. They speak these words. They speak the words that we are a forsaken people. God has abandoned us and allowed us to be taken captive into Babylon. Where is God when we need him? Where is our God? And he's saying, no longer will you be called forsaken. And it, and I'm sure that the people of Babylon and the other nations around there uh, who laughed and ridiculed the Jews, called them forsaken. Why are you trusting in this God who allowed you to be taken captive to Babylon and be the slaves of the Babylonians? And so there, it's not going to be the case anymore. Or your land desolate. Desolate? No. Desolate? Your land is devastated. You lost your land. It's been turned into a, a, a desert. God is changing the name of the people for a reason, just like he changed the name of Jacob to Israel. And why did he change the, name, change the name from Jacob to Israel? Because Jacob had an encounter with God. And as a result of that encounter with God, he was no longer a trickster. He was no longer a usurper. He was a person, a man of God. If we look at note B in the Jerusalem, New Jerusalem Bible on Isaiah 62, it says, Forsaken Azuba, my delight, and I can't pronounce Hespelah, these names conferred on Jerusalem Judah because of their meaning are real names attested elsewhere in the Bible, and it goes on to talk about that. So it says, but you shall be called my delight. What And that word delight there really means you're the ones that are going to be called what, what, who gives me pleasure? 
who I desire, who it is that I really want. You are special to me. It's what it's saying. You shall be called my delight. You know, in Psalm 37, verse 4, it says, if you make Yahweh your only joy, if you, do, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Here it's saying, it's turning it around, and it's saying God delights in us. God loves us. We are his children. There's nothing we can do that he won't want to, to have us. Isaiah 60, uh, verse 15 says, you shall leave your name for my chosen to curse, and the Lord will slay you, but his servants will call by, be called by a different name. So there's a name change that's going on. God wants to do something different. Hosea 2, for the Lord delights in you, and your land espoused. So again, we have this sense of this bridal situation that God is talking about here. God wants to treat us as, as, as his bride. And the, who is the bride of Christ? It's the church. It is the new Jerusalem. It is the new Israel. God wants us to be his bride. And as a part of that, we are a part of that, as a part of the body of Christ. For God delights in you and makes you his, your land his spouse. <clears throat> Hosea 2.25 says, I shall sow in her in the country to be mine. I shall take Lo Rumaha, I shall tell Lo Ami, you are my people, and he will say, you are my God. And that's, this one's from the New Jerusalem Bible. I typically quote from the, the RSV, Second Catholic Edition. And the next quote is as well, and we're going to re read this one right now. It says, Yahweh, this is Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Yahweh your God is there with you, the war savior. He will rejoice over you with a happy song. He will renew you by his love. He will dance with shouts of joy for you as on a day of festival. I have taken away your misfortune. No longer need you bear the disgrace of it. So God is doing this for his people. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. Isaiah 65 verses 18 and 19 says, Rather be joyful, be glad forever at what I am creating. For look, I am creating Jerusalem to be joy and my people to be gladness. I shall be joyful in Jerusalem and I shall rejoice in my people. No more will the sound of weeping be heard there, nor the sound of a shriek. God wants to do something for us. Are you looking forward to what God is doing, even if you're in the very pits? Let's look next at the first reading, which is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. And we can look at Ephesians. Uh, well, we'll look at that. Brothers and sisters, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different workings, but the same God who produces all of them in everyone. Okay. And then to each individual, the manifestation of the spirit is given for some benefit. What that is really saying to us is, just, is that we're all we're all parts. Uh, we're all basically tools in God's toolbox that he can use as he pleases. And just because you're not a hammer doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a screwdriver. Just because you happen to be a trowel doesn't mean that you, that you shouldn't that, that you should be a, uh, a paintbrush, for example. 
God gives us to us, but it's all for some benefit. And let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. As the gifts, as his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature and the fullness of Christ. Okay, so uh, God gives us to us to so that we can build up the body. Now, you can go back and you can look at Romans 12. Uh, I'm not going to do that one. But let's take a quick look. This is to each individual. To one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, is given through the Spirit the expression of wisdom. The note D talks about, in the New Jerusalem Bible says, probably the guest of preaching the deepest Christian truths about God and God's life in us. This is the perfect teaching. See uh, Hebrews 6, 1. To another, is, to another, the expression of knowledge according to the uh, Spirit, same Spirit. And this knowledge, uh, New Jerusalem Bible says, this, this is the gift of preaching. Oops, I, I got that. The gift, further one, is the gift of preaching the deepest Christian truths. And this one is the preaching the elementary Christian truths. So it, a lot of it has to, to do with preach, preaching. To another, faith by the same spirit. And that's note F. And what it, the New Jerusalem Bible tells us is that that is the, it's a super intense faith beyond just dealing with to another gifts of healing by the same spirit, to another mighty deeds, to another prophecy, uh, and to another discernment of spirits. And I want to talk about that a little bit. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets come out into the world. By this will you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come of the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you've heard coming. Now it's already in the world. We can't just say that everything is there. I'm going to call it a quits there because you can talk about the rest of them, and uh, we need to just understand that God wants to do something tremendous in your life. And in if you haven't heard God say something to you recently, get somewhere where you can get quiet and wait for God to speak. And are you willing to believe what God is going to say to you? Try it. Try the obedience to what he says and be surprised, as surprised as those that we saw in the gospel. I thank you so much for being with us today, and I hope to be with you next week. And in the meantime, that God will richly bless you in every way.